giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Bytel. And I'm your other host, Lindsay Christensen. And today, I think we're going to talk about money. Money, 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 money. (laughs) So many song options that I'm sure we won't pay to get the rights to. (laughs) That's true. I think everything's fair use. So I'm not not sure that that's true. Creative Commons. (laughs) Yeah. So obviously, you know, when it comes to money and startups and fundraising, there's also the option of not taking money and bootstrapping as well. And so at ThoughtBot, we've bootstrapped, which is pretty typical for consulting companies. A lot of our clients bootstrap or fundraise. The most common path for our startup clients that we see is to have an initial angel or self-funded amount that gets you out the door and gets the wheels turning and then fundraise a more significant amount once you have a product in the market and you're starting to show traction and need to start to build a bigger team. That's probably the flow that I have the most sort of secondhand experience watching. Is there even another option between those two? Between those two, there is an option where if you've been successful, you can raise money just on an idea. I suppose that would be the option to raise a significant amount of money based Mm -hmm. on just an idea. But I think that that's pretty rare. And I guess under bootstrap would also be the idea that you just magically built something that's so Mm -hmm. amazing that it is immediately revenue generating and self-sufficient. Right. I have seen some companies raise from external investors in the beginning, angel investors, and then they're able to become self-sufficient and they don't need to raise significantly more money. In fact, this isn't quite that journey, but Wistia, who we had on a long time ago, they talked about how they ended up buying out their original investors because they had a profitable business and no longer matched the expectations of growth that investors might be looking for, but that they realized what kind of business they had and they wanted to take it back into their own hands. Mm-hmm. Now that I think about it, there is also an emerging, I would say, format of crowdfunding. Oh, right. Yeah. Which I think really started with Kickstarter or at least became Mm -hmm. widely popular. Right. And now there are like a few other, I think, similar kind of venues running the same concept I get the impression it's highly regulated, possibly like overly regulated, because it's it's tricky, right? So there's all mm. these, at least in probably will speak most to like what goes on in the US, regulations around who can invest in companies. And the goal is to protect the investor themselves. Right. So being an accredited investor means you have a certain personal value net worth that is, you know, over a million dollars so that you're not investing over your means. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a counter argument that that's overly strict and is actually preventing the middle class or, you know, emerging groups from being able to access this source of of wealth, including people who might 
be experts in the areas. So like, mm-hmm. I think a common kind of devil's advocate is like, you know, what about someone who has a, a PhD or, or teaches this as an MBA course at Harvard Business, but doesn't have that net worth kind of thing? Yeah, I think that the way Kickstarter sort of gets around that is the money amounts have traditionally been low on Kickstarter. And technically, you're often the way it's pitched is you're you're not investing in the company, you're not becoming an investor, you're buying the first version of it, you're basically pre ordering. And then the other thing is many people don't realize that Kickstarter actually, they've relaxed this, but it, it was it was especially true when they were first getting started. You're not supposed to do new companies, new startups on Kickstarter. It's supposed to be we're an existing team or an existing person who is an artist and I'm this is my next project or this is something we want to do and it's only through crowdfunding that we can afford to do it as opposed to a brand new untested new business that has never shipped anything before putting themselves on Kickstarter. That's one of the reasons why Tile, which was a customer of ours and did a huge crowdfunding campaign, they weren't on Kickstarter. They built their own infrastructure for, or they, you know, they, they hosted their own crowdfunding campaign because they were a brand new company with a brand new idea. Do you think Kickstarter and and crowdfunding tends to be more for like physical products or hardware? It seems like it does. And I think that there's a few different reasons for that. I think the big one is like it's a compelling thing that you can make a video about. <laughs> That's one aspect of it. The other is this is going to be sort of a business technical term, but almost everything on Kickstarter is not zero marginal cost. So software is a zero marginal cost business. The, it doesn't cost you anything more to send someone another copy of your software. And as a result, people tend to not value it as much, and you don't need to fund it the same way as you do hardware. It costs you a fixed amount to produce the first version, and then it doesn't cost you anything more to make more copies of that. And that's not true for hardware. Mm -hmm. So what have the funding situation been at companies that you've been at? Kind of a mix. I've worked at a company that was large and publicly traded that once upon a time started as a, a startup, but way before my time. So, I, you know, I entered and it was, you know, very much a, a public company and we had, you know, a whole investor relations group and answering to Wall Street was like a big part of like company goals. Mm-hmm. And then I've worked at really early stage startups so one, I joined at the seed stage through to Series A, and I left a little bit after the Series A. Another one, I joined, I think, more around Series A, and then we got acquired. So then I was a part of another big big company post-acquisition and stayed there for a bit. So a, a little bit of a mix. And then, obviously, the last two and a half years at, at ThoughtBot. So I don't want to take for granted that everyone knows the difference between angel, seed, and series A and beyond. So from your perspective, what is the difference between seed and series A? Yeah, so seed is quite early on. The founders have been working on the thing 
probably with their own time and money or even like on the side of their full-time job for maybe a, a year or two kind of working on like, is this a thing, a business plan? And then the seed round is kind of the first infiltration of money. And it may be from friends and family network. Otherwise, it's usually from angel investors. So angel investors being, again, uh, accredited investors. So people who have a large personal net worth, um, large to me, that is, and are really into like investing at companies at the very, very early stage. And at that point, really, I think the company kind of has like a prototype or is building the prototype. Mm -hmm. So this is like the first kind of funding to build a true MVP. Then Series A is you're now usually going to an actual capital firm, usually multiple firms, and you've proven out something very interesting with that MVP. You have some, some satisfied customers. So now you're trying to get to the next level, the Series B, which I think is usually more about like proving the business model, getting more market share. Yeah. And I think there are seed stage venture capital firms. They sit in between angel investment and Series A, where they're typically investing, you know, 500, a million, 2 million. They're calling it seed. There's almost always been previous investment and there's already a product there. And that seed is sort of like the seed of scale or getting to the next level. And then Series A usually becomes more about scaling. It's sort of like moving the scale at which you're operating up when, you, when you're starting to take institutional money for your seed round. And the dollar amounts are typically higher. Yeah, and somewhere in that realm to I think early on, like seed kind of time is also when you might be looking at doing an accelerator, mm -hmm. if that's part of your journey. And accelerators typically are also doing taking some shares in return for your going through the program. So they end up as a, another kind of investor in the company. Yeah, and I'm by no means an expert, so we'll talk more about it with the companies, but that is an important distinction. You know, when you are going through an accelerator or you are taking on investment at a seed with an institutional investor or Series A or beyond, you're giving equity in exchange for that money. Angel investors typically aren't taking equity directly because you either don't exist or you don't have something that they can place a strong enough value on. And so what will typically be the case is they're taking warrants or something like that, which is essentially an agreement that they can invest or get equity at a later stage once certain criteria are met, such as a valuation of this much is able to be had or future investors come on or those kinds of things, that's when their warrants will kick in and they'll get the equity. Yeah, I think also sometimes you, as an angel, you will get some kind of percentage, mm -hmm. basically with the knowledge that once they go to series A, you're going to be bought out. Right. 
by the next level of investors who, for them, like things that are really important to those institutional investors are that they're owning like the most percentage as possible and kind of staking control in the company. Mm -hmm. And this is what becomes a little bit complicated or even like a, a hot topic of whether or not to take investor money because there is this element of giving up control. Yeah, if you're taking significant venture capital as a founder, it's a very reasonable expectation to no longer own the majority of the company at the end of that process. It's my understanding. And you know, you could be 20% of the company only or even in some I think extreme circumstances maybe even less. The way that people put it is, do you want a smaller piece of a bigger pie than if you never took the money and you own 100% of it, but you end up failing or not being as big as you mm -hmm. otherwise would be? And I think that's the thought process that people go through when they're thinking about that. Pillar VC, which is a, a local Boston VC firm, recently put out a cool tool called a term sheet grader. Mm -hmm. which kind of walks you through the major elements of a term sheet, which was the thing, you know, you're agreeing with an investor on the terms of like who owns what shares and like who controls what elements. So we should definitely add that to the show notes because it puts yeah. it in really simple terms. But some of the other things they call out is board seats. So that's a big one. Um, a major investor is going to want at least one of your board seats. So that amounts for, you know, a lot of major decision making. And related to that also is voting. Like, what are their voting rights on major company issues? We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up and seeing a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. It's pretty great. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash giantrobots, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. And I highly recommend one of the ThoughtBot open source projects. Once again, thanks to Scout APM for sponsoring today's episode. So do you have opinions on <laughs> whether companies should take money or not? And how they should do it and when? Ooh, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking investment money. I've seen it be successful. But I think over the years, I have learned just how important it is to vet your investors. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think of it the other way around. Like the investors are the ones kind of sussing out the deals and accepting you or not accepting you. Uh, but it's so important for you as a leadership team to be in agreement on what is important to us for an investor who is going to essentially become a part of this company. And especially, you know, value alignment, not just have they had a portfolio that's done well, 
But what are the individual people? What are their values? What's important to them? What excites them about tech? Do they invest in uh, diverse founders? You know, go talk to people they've invested in. So how is that experience working with them? Were they really hands-on or were they just kind of there if you needed them? And similarly, uh, a cool new trend that has, I think is like emerged even in the last five years or so, is this idea of like a portfolios community. So mm-hmm. that can be a huge asset to you. Are they building a community where you're now able to access, besides the investors themselves, other leaders from major companies, other founders? Are they you know, bringing people together in an interesting way that can actually accelerate you as a leader, especially if you're a first-time founder? Something like that can be hugely beneficial. I think my thinking has evolved over the years as I've learned more, gotten more business experience myself, and obviously worked with hundreds of clients and seen them go through different journeys and learn different things. I think I used to be much more philosophically down the road of like, if you can possibly bootstrap your own company, never taking investment, then you should totally do that <laughs> because you're in control. You know, when when you take investment, the incentives for growth and what you do as a company and everything really do change. And so you can start to make decisions that aren't what you would necessarily do if you were just focused on building a sustainable company in terms of profitability and scaling and and all that stuff. But my thinking changed because I saw customers of ours and people in my community who avoided taking money and then failed (laughs) horribly because they weren't able to move fast enough at the level that they actually needed to in order to be successful. Marketing, if you have a consumer product, for example, and you're not able to actually invest significant amounts of money in marketing, that's a real risk If you're not able to find or turn on an organic engine for acquiring new customers and you don't have the money to spend on real marketing, chances are you're really going to struggle to grow. And I've seen a lot of bootstrap companies fail at at that point where Mm -hmm. they're just not growing fast enough and able to uh, acquire new customers to get to the point where they could be bootstrapped and profitable. Yeah, a good investor will help you identify that also, like your growth numbers aren't where they need to be. And then proactively like connect you with someone who did whatever that thing is really well in a similar style company. I think examples like that can also be outside of the funding um, examples where they can really help accelerate your knowledge Mm -hmm. and growth. One example, similar situation, and it's, it's a little bit of an outlier, but I, I think it's important to recognize when it's happening, which is sometimes there are certain movements and we may be in one of those now with like remote working and and that kind of thing. A while ago, this was particularly true in our technology circles because all of the group buying sites were built in Rails. And so we had Groupon and Living Social and the third largest was called Buy With Me. And Buy With Me raised money. They overall wanted to create a sustainable, meaningful business. And their competitors and what the market around them was doing was raising hundreds of millions of dollars. 
And so when something like that happens and you're holding back, you really put yourself in a position to just not be able to compete on the same level as those other competitors that are moving into a a new market or a vacuum in the market and you'll just be left out. Yeah, that's a, a great point. I think when investors are getting excited about you at the seed and series A stage, they think you have a chance of disrupting something major in a specific industry. And maybe there's one or two other players-ish around. Usually, actually, ideally, like a little competition is actually proving that there there is a thing out there. And they want to help you kind of bust ahead of them as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. It would sort of be like today if you were getting started at the same time as Uber and Lyft, who have raised billions of dollars and hundreds of millions. And you were like, oh, I'm going to raise $5 million and we're you know, going to grow a sustainable business. It would be very difficult to be successful in, in that way. Yeah. Again, these are sort of outlier industries, but I've definitely seen it where people you know, abstracting maybe not the market, but where you just, you're conservative about how much money you raise. And I guess this is one way in my thinking has evolved, which is I sort of think once you cross a certain line for fundraising, you might as well raise as much money as you possibly can, because you've already taken on the burden of having external investment. You don't want to put yourself in a position of then not having enough money. The kind of wild valuations that we've seen over the last few years have made me kind of Mm -hmm. made me laugh and shake my head a bit, you know, where there's this year's 30 unicorns that are valued at Mm -hmm. a billion dollars have seen a little extreme. Yeah. It'll be interesting how the economic downturn impacts that if it does. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people over the last couple of months that they recognize that things are difficult, but they also recognize that there's opportunities to be had out there. And like, even when in a tough economy, there's still people, investors who have money who want to invest in things. And so a lot of companies, actually VC companies that have over the last couple of months announced new funds done entirely remotely. And I haven't heard anything from any of those people about that it was difficult to raise another fund. And so when we say fund, what we mean is, you know, you have a VC firm, VC firms don't just manufacture that money, and they're not coming up with the money themselves. What VC firms do is actually they're, they're fundraising, collecting the money from other investors and pooling that all together into a fund, which they then invest in companies. Yeah, I've heard the same thing that Mm -hmm. actually building funds has maybe even been easier right now. I don't know. We, if you've kept your job over the last few months, you're like me kind of feel like you're saving a lot. So, Mm -hmm. you know, investing, you probably maybe have had more time to think about it and uh, play with the, the budget a little bit. I think so. And I think that strong companies recognize that in a downturn, if you have money and you sort of can push through it, there's actually, whether it be acquiring other companies, making strategic investments, that when other companies are in a position where they can't do that, you will come out stronger on the other side. 
And I think that that's part of the dynamic that happens now. Yeah. So we should also mention why these investors are investing, which is they're hoping for an exit, which is either an IPO, so going the startup goes public, or an acquisition. So another company acquires your company. Well, and I guess the third would be a merger, but Mm -hmm. I think that's much less likely. And basically at that point, there's a payout. Or like you said, getting another round of investors, which then exit the previous investors, which is similar dollar dynamic to uh, acquisition, but different. And then they're getting their payout. Right. And through all this, they're kind of building a diversified portfolio like you would do with your own 401k or if you're in the stock market, figuring that one or two of them is going to, to, to pay off. Particularly in the venture capital world, that's what they're doing. And so that's why venture capitalists will look for 10 times investment, you know, that, that they're, they're planning on a lot of portfolio not to have a return. And they're planning on the few that do have a return to have an outsized return that not only pays for all the other losses that they made, but goes above and beyond. And that's where some people say, like, that's where the dynamics get messed up for the companies who take money being pushed to do things that they wouldn't necessarily do in terms of profitability or scale because their investors aren't looking at just running a sustainable business. They're looking at getting a 10 times return on their investment. Yeah. And the the sustainable business aspect is a, a big one. I would say if you're, you are taking on typical investment firm capital, you have said, I am not going to run a sustainable business effectively. <laughs> right. You get put on, you're now in kind of an aggressive timeline of when certain company benchmarks are essentially promised to be met to your investors. And the investors love models. So they've got all these models of like what your company growth should look like at certain points. And they're going to really push you to be hitting those. Um, and that could be, you know, customer number, revenue number, uh, size of customer. And then you're kind of checking in with them at your board meetings around how you're doing with those and basically working towards your next round of funding which in the early years is happening every year or two years, seed, series A, series B. Mm-hmm. You know, you're probably only at like five years when, when that's happening. Yeah, I'm really curious to hear the fundraising stories of the companies that we're talking to, and in particular, how often they're fundraising and how much time they in- invested into it. Because I think right. it's a lot. <laughs> For a lot of companies, it's a lot. Yeah, it becomes kind of the CEO's main job. Right. And sometimes, you know, I'm also interested, I think that changes people's jobs. If you need to spend all your time fundraising instead of working on your product or with your team, that that can be an issue. Mm-hmm. I think they also, you know, often are acting as a individual buffer, which I think can be a strain mm-hmm. between the investors and the team. And then, you know, deciding what information or decisions filtrate both ways. Yeah. It could be lonely. And I'm curious to hear whether any of the companies that we're following, they're pretty early, but whether they think about exits or strategy, you know, is the goal to go public 
uh, and whether they're willing to talk about that. <laughs> I, I started laughing because most founders will say that they are going public and that's the only exit. <laughs> but then a nice enough acquisition comes along. Yeah. <laughs> I guess another element of being in the VC investment structure is also thinking about what kind of equity your team gets, which I actually imagine that our founders won't want to share that that's usually a private financial thing. But there are different kind of ways you can slice up the shares that are available and also how those end up getting distributed and over what timeline. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting team dynamic there, you know, regardless of how you slice it up or the portions that you're giving out, most companies that take investment will introduce stock option plan and give stock options to employees. And I've never really been part of that environment where sort of like everyone on a team has been given stock options and there is an expectation of having an exit eventually and what that does to people's motivations and what it does on the, in their day-to-day -day work and in their long-term prospects. It's just not a personal experience that I've ever had. I think it's exciting. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are extra motivated to work a little bit harder because, you know, if there is that big successful exit, you're getting a piece of that, both financially, but also just like kind of from a personal fulfillment mm -hmm. aspect, like you're a part of that success story. You know, most of the startups are talking about how they're going to disrupt an industry and totally change the way people work or the way people live for the better. And this is a part of like a big movement mm -hmm. and you're a part of it. And you're also on this accelerated schedule, which is also kind of pumping the adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you know, what if, if I worked, you know, another hour on this, we're like that much closer to an exit, basically. So there's definitely an element of that of people who are excited by a little bit of like a gamble, like coming in to this exciting, unsure kind of environment and having an impact on it. I definitely wouldn't say that's everybody mm -hmm. for sure. I've kind of always thought of it as like monopoly money. Like it was like a nice to have, yeah. but you know, make sure my salary's <laughs> in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nothing's a for sure. But yeah, I think, I think a lot of people, it, it can be an exciting thing to be a part of. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's been a growing conversation over the last few years is not only diversity in technology in general in the in the industry but specifically around the exclusion that happens for founders and the investment that they're able to get and how the disparity between black and people of color and women founders relative to white male founders mm -hmm. and we actually had a couple guests on previous episodes to talk about that. And there's some people in the industry specifically working on it and trying to create different kinds of funds. I would also like to say, I, I think that we're not nearly moving as fast, but I have noticed even more traditional firms at least opening up this conversation and recognizing that it's something that needs to be addressed, even if they're not making progress as much as they, they really need to in order to actually address the issues. 
Yeah, I know. And I'm sure I'm, we'll talk about this with the Sheer Share founders. You know, they took investment from Arlen Hamilton, mm-hmm. who started the backstage fund specifically for underrepresented founders. They have a really cool story, Arlen, around, you know, her journey and starting that fund. And it has building an incredible portfolio. And so it's cool to see those things start. But I totally agree. It's like, Ireland actually just released a book called It's About Damn Time, <laughs> which I think kind of sums up yeah. uh, the sentiment like this should have been happening long ago. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that about does it. I'm looking forward to talking to all the founders and hear their fundraising stories or horror stories, as the case may be. Um, you can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode and all the other episodes at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. You can find me on Twitter at cpartel. <laughs> and me on Twitter at lindsay3d. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Thoughtbot and produced and edited by Tom Alborski. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Thoughtbot. Thoughtbot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.